So, uh, Colossians. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of different introduction we could do. I'll try to keep it simple. Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, uh, but he's not the founder of the church at uh, Colossae. Uh, he probably uh, was established by believers that came from uh, Paul's ministry. So as Paul ministered to others, and they ventured into Colossae and shared the faith with this group of people, they became believers. And uh, Paul writes them this letter having heard about their faith, having uh, heard uh, what's going on in their midst. And he's very blessed by uh, the growth and uh, the maturity that they're demonstrating, the, uh, the work uh, that's going on uh, in uh, their town and in their uh, fellowship. So there are a number of things uh, to examine uh, doctrinally, uh, personally, uh, for us to be encouraged by, but also, like I say, doctrinally, as far as um, things that we can know and understand uh, about uh, particularly Jesus. And, oh, thanks, brother. Um, and uh, his personage. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Uh, we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So uh, a couple of things uh, to begin with. Um, Jesus chose uh, the 11 other apostles, 12 really. Judas, uh, at this point, is no longer alive, having killed himself for the guilt of having betrayed Jesus, who was, you know, perfectly innocent. And uh, the Lord replaced uh, Judas some years later with Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting uh, the church. And uh, Paul's name, or Saul's name, was changed to Paul. So having most directly been chosen by Jesus Christ uh, to minister to uh, the uh, Gentile churches, he declares himself here an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that's, uh, in other places, he makes very adamant uh, defenses about the fact that he is an apostle, because there were those who had come particularly to the church at Corinth and um, brought accusations against Paul, diminishing in the mind of that church uh, the power of Paul's ministry. So he you know, makes that defense very adamantly. Here, uh, he's quite simply declaring uh, to the church at Colossae who he is and what he does. The term apostle um, could be thought of as one who is sent out. Uh, there's a few different ways of looking at it, but that's the basic idea that he has been sent out to to minister uh, to the church. Now, Timothy uh, here, interestingly enough, Paul has mentored and discipled uh, Timothy. Uh, many other occasions where Timothy is referred to, uh, he's referred to by Paul as my son in the faith. And here uh, he refers to him as our brother. 
And, um, you know, that is reflective of the maturity that has occurred in Timothy. There's a progress that has taken uh, part in uh, his life and in his relationship with Paul. You know, I, I can look at my own life and my own walk and I can see uh, that there were men who, when I first came to know the Lord, uh, they were very much like a father to me, guiding me, directing me, correcting me, providing for me. And um, as time has gone by, uh, many of those relationships have changed uh, to where they rely upon me as much as I rely upon them. There's a brotherhood that is established, and uh, that's important and significant because Jesus specifically said, call no man on earth your spiritual father. And he even went as far as to say, don't call anyone your teacher, uh, for you are all brethren. So, you know, Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. Uh, I just mentioned that, you know, I, there were those who fathered me along in the faith. It's the idea of demanding that Jesus is forbidding. We, we should not establish a hierarchy in the church. Uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus Christ makes the statement that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's a compound word. Uh, you can hear the word laity in it, Nicolaitans. Uh, the Nicol are those who are the priesthood or the ruling class. Jesus Christ came to nullify all priesthoods of Christianity and to become the one singular high priest of all Christianity. There are no priests over anyone else. There's no one who has a superiority in our faith. Uh, you know, even what is mistakenly sometimes referred to as the saints, we think of as like the super class of Christians that have, you know, a specific number of miracles associated with them. And then a group of people voted on whether they were worthy of being, you know, made a saint. That's not biblical at all. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation is a saint according to God, according to Jesus Christ, according to the word of God. Brothers is what we are. Paul here has this relationship with Timothy that has come to the place of brotherhood. In verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, you know, Paul says in some of his other letters, Peter also, you know, I didn't think that it was tedious, Paul is the one who says it that way, uh, to repeat things in my teaching to you. Uh, you know, it's through repetition that we learn things. Uh, so the fact here that I'm going to go over grace and peace is repetitious, uh, but it's necessary. Uh, we lose uh, track of the fact that uh, one, I'm looking for, or, you know, peace, and the world is looking for peace, and the only way to find it is through the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, still, Billions of dollars, last statistic that I read, $69 billion, with a B, 
spent by Americans on behavioral modification drugs, antidepressants, anti-anxieties, anti-psychotics. You know, America is looking for peace. Uh, they're striving for $69 billion. That's $31,000 a minute spent by Americans on behavioral modification drugs. Where well, we are looking for peace. Not going to find it. Not without the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. That's the thing. I don't understand the grace of Jesus Christ. Guess what? You can learn and know about it from his word. With the power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart and mind, you can discover the grace of Jesus Christ and experience the peace that automatically accompanies that. So here, Paul is declaring that to this is to the church of Colossae. I'm extending to you the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's some discussion, and it is coupled together as one. Uh, there is the distinction of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but the way it's written makes this a unified statement that the grace and peace come from one source. And that one source is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All on an even playing field. We'll talk more specifically about the fact that Jesus is God here in just a moment. In verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith right and so again paul's never even been to this church and yet once he's learned of their faith he prays continuously for them um you know i i have certain attachments and friendships with people uh, you know i i i have never yet been to kenya africa and seen calvary chapel in Eldoret. But uh, I'm close friends with Josh Lawrence. And in particular, I'm very close friends with Ruben Kagami. And uh, I've spent a lot of time with him. He's been in my house many times. And every time they come to mind, I pray for them. I just, you know, they're so moved by who they are and what they're doing and the apologetic ministry that's there. And I'll, I'll never forget uh, that uh, when some of the Muslim community had broken out in violence and it was all right there and I'm seeing in the news that's my friend's neighborhood I can't believe this and I call up Reuben and he's literally you can hear the concern in his voice they've been told to lock all the doors and shelter in place because the police will not be able to get to them if anyone comes to carry out violence upon I'm talking to this man as he's got his family huddled into the radio station and they're just praying uh, that the Lord would protect. That's the only protection they have is the Lord at that point. Now, you know, these sorts of things will really make you attached to people when you hear and know of what they're going through and the persecution that they're experiencing. There is a growing persecution at this time for Christianity in this world. And Paul is uh, concerned and praying uh, for this group of believers ever since he heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all of the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth uh, 
of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and it brings forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also learned from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ in, uh, excuse me, on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit, capital S there. So Epiphras or Epiphras, depending on who you're, uh, you know, whose pronunciation you're going to use. Philippians chapter 2, the previous book, uh, chapter 2, verse 25, Paul said, Yet I consider it necessary uh, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Uh, this is one and the same. This is just a shortened terminology of his name. And he earns a reputation that's recorded a few times in the scripture. I, I like the fact that the Holy Spirit records for us those who've not only been faithful, but those who've been a liability and a detriment to the faith, right? Um, you know, there are uh, people within the church today who like to hide in the church through anonymity. They go to one church and create a whole bunch of problems and then they scurry out the door, blow things up emotionally as they depart and end up in some other church. And, uh, you know, when that happens, people sometimes are not aware if uh, the pastor of the last church they were in discovers that they're now in my church, they call me up and say, hey, is so-and-so in your fellowship now? And I say, well, in fact, they are. And they say, beware. <laughs> beware of their conduct. Know what just walked through your door. And they'll lay it on me about the problems they've caused. And when people find out, they're like, oh, you guys are gossiping. No, we're not. We are, in fact, shepherds of the flock Christ has given us. And if there's a very sick sheep in this flock that leaves and departs and goes to another flock, that shepherd needs to know about the illness that has just arrived in their flock so that they can inoculate that one that just arrived and those around that one that just arrived. Paul gives positive affirmations and mentions and very negative mentions to individuals and their movement and their influences in the church. He talks, talks specifically about their behaviors. Listen, you got to hear this, right? This is the Holy Spirit recording these names in the Scripture for all of eternity. Eternity. The church needs to be aware that how we conduct ourselves is a matter of record. And how we affect or infect the body of Christ 
is a matter of record. And I do mean eternal, right? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. So if you've got a glowing report such as this, right? But if you're Demas and you were once ministering with Paul and labeled as my fellow minister, but then when you depart, Paul records he's forsaken me because of his love of the world, right? For all of Christianity to know that such a one existed in Paul's ministry. I'm not encouraging us to be gossips at all. But what I'm saying is, you know, our culture totally has this attitude like, oh, you don't want to be a rat, man. That's jailhouse mentality. It's important for people to know the health of the flock. You know, the thing to do, right, if, if you're looking at the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians and you see the man mentioned there who's living in sexual sin with his stepmother, right? Everybody at the church at Corinth, when they read that letter, instantly knows who they're talking about at that point. The thing for that man to do is repent, so that when we get to 2 Corinthians, we can hear of his repentance. And now, right, now his example to the church is the admission of his wrong, the repentance of his sin. Not the confession, the leaving and the forsaking of his sin so that he can be in right standing in relationship with the Lord. That's a beautiful example. If your failure is going to be marked down, right, the only way that that turns out good is if your repentance is marked down <laughs> and your restoration to the church is marked down. It needs to be carefully understood that we're not of the world. We don't operate the world the way the world does. And if we leave things in the church unchecked, they grow and they fester and they create really serious problems, really serious problems. It's unfortunate thing. A friend of mine, pastoring a church had a family that was just completely upside down they'd wreck in his church kids are out of control and sunday school and destroying people and things and you know father's out of control and sin and the wife's you know arguing difficult and complaining and always causing trouble my my pastor friend is really just wanting to get rid of them but he continues to minister and minister and minister and minister but then they had a couple instances where he knew, oh, this is going to come to a head. There's nothing I can do about this. And he went to prayer about, what am I going to do, Father? And the Lord said, I want you to go to the treasurer of the church, and I want you to find out exactly how much money they've given to your church. He thought, well, that's a really weird thing. And the Lord impressed it upon his heart to the point where he did it. And it was a super small sum of money. And the Lord said, now I want you to have the treasurer write out a check for that sum of money to the father. So you can give him all the money back that he's given to the church. And so he had the treasurer do that and he put it in his pocket thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And he arrives at church and the father comes in steaming mad and demands, I have to speak to the pastor and I want to see the elders and I want to talk to so-and-so. And they sit down in the office. 
And my pastor friend's got this check in his pocket. And he's thinking, oh, this is not how I wanted this to all unfold. And this guy starts in and the conversation turns around until my pastor friend is saying, yeah, but look, you know, your children are literally wrecking things in our Sunday school and, and, and like hurting our teachers physically. And, you know, it's unruly and problems with you and problems with your wife. And we're trying, man. And the guy literally said, you got to try harder. And this pastor said, I'm doing everything I can. And the guy literally said, you need to do more. That's what I'm paying you for. And he instantly knew why he had the check in his pocket. And he pulled the check out and said, well, you're not paying me enough. And just handed him the check and said, you need to leave. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And people don't, right? People that cause trouble stir things up. They don't like to hear that. The Lord works in, in our midst if we'll let him. If we'll let him, right? The beautiful thing here is you have a wonderful example with a man's name attached to it. That's, that's where we want to be, right? I want it to be that my name is, you know, said in ways that are kind. You know, that are said in ways uh, that people respect. Not, not in ways that are damaging. Epiphras has been recorded for us in a very positive light. It says in verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And that isn't, you know, Paul saying... <clears throat> You know, we pray all day long, every moment. He, he's, he's, he's got the mindset of you guys, are, you know, whenever you come up, whenever you're on our mind, we pray. You're constant. Any, any chance we get, we're thinking of you. We're praying of you. We don't cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, capital H there, meaning God's will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, Fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening, excuse me, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy. And I'll pause there for a moment because all of this knowledge and all of this understanding and wisdom that Paul is talking about is, you know, because they're going to have to endure this, this patience and this long suffering, you know, long suffering has become a word that we just sort of fling out there without thought. It, it's literally the idea of suffering for a very long time and that you would be able to do that coupled with patience, right? So, you know, sometimes we get the sense like, We've been a good Christian because we've suffered for a long time. But then if I examine myself, I've complained the whole time. <laughs> you know, I, I've suffered for a long time, but boy, I've let the whole world know about my suffering. You know, he's saying that I want the knowledge. I want your understanding. I want your wisdom to increase because you guys need to be in this for the long haul. This is going to be difficult. 
It's not going to be easy. The tables are turning around us right now. There, there is a, a growing persecution. And we, and we teeter right now on, on a knife's edge. This, this country is showing a hatred and an animosity towards Christianity that's remarkable. Remarkable. Uh, I, I, you know, the emancipation uh, statue of Abraham Lincoln paid for by freed slaves. You know, people want that torn down in Washington, D.C. And I watch as online they go and just interview dozens of people that are there. Uh, you know, do you want this statue torn down? Yes. Why? And they go off on this whole thing about racism. And they let them say their whole piece. And then they say, do you know why the statue is there? And they don't. And they say, do you know who paid for the statue? And they don't. They just have a hatred that they want to express. And it's aimed at all the wrong people. Because they're aiming it at themselves. We're one nation. We can't attack ourselves. That will just destroy us. We have to find the method to be united. People point at the Bible and say, that's the divisive thing right there. No, it's not. I mean, do we understand that this book declares there's only one race? There's only one race. That's it. We are all descended from the same common ancestry. It began with one man and his wife, right? It grew massive, but then it bottlenecked again at Noah, reduced down to four men and their wives, eight People went aboard the ark, and all of the human race has come from them. That's a scientific fact as you examine the gene pool of the whole human race. We are one blood. The scripture declares these things. The Bible places us under one element. That's it. And if we begin to turn on one another because of race or class, or whatever other thing we want to divide, then all we're going to do is destroy ourselves. That's it. This is, this is an internal implosion of our nation. The answer is to turn to the word of God and let it deliver us from this hatred. That's demonically inspired. The wisdom, the understanding, the knowledge that needs to come to us is for the patience, and for long-suffering. We need to be in this for the long haul, the endurance test to go through this in godliness, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And there again, we have a reference to the saints. Anyone who's trusting the Lord for salvation is a saint. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Now listen, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. 
much of Christianity does not actually live that way. They have the mentality that we've just been forgiven, but not delivered. Christ has given us the strength to be delivered from the power of darkness and our sin. Christ has given us the power through his Holy Spirit to be delivered from sin, to no longer live in it, to no longer be dominated by it. You're going to sin for the rest of your life, but you don't have to be enslaved to sin, right? You're in the flesh, and the flesh is sinful. So you're going to turn around, and something's going to catch you off guard, and you're going to do something you shouldn't do. And you confess that to the Lord, and you seek his forgiveness, and he restores you. But the sins that are habitual and enslaved us. You know, we were pretty much known by them, even if we only knew it within ourselves. We had no freedom from it whatsoever. Christ has delivered us from these things. He already has. And it's really unfortunate that our enemy has convinced a lot of Christianity that that's never going to happen for you. What's most disheartening is many who stand in the pulpits teach that same thing. It's just the way it is. You're going to have to just rely upon God's grace. Listen, that's the most unfulfilled way of going through life. Tormented and tortured and defeated Christ does not want us to live that way. But the nation of Israel, when he led them out of captivity in Egypt, they were slaves. They worked for the Egyptian taskmasters. Delivered through the parting of the Red Sea, they head towards the promised land. Takes them decades to get there, but when they finally arrive, the Lord has a long message for them. And part of that message is, I'm going to leave people in the land who are your enemies because you need to know how to fight for the rest of your life to fight for your existence if if i drive all the enemies out and give you a comfortable state of living so that there is never any warfare never any difficulty never any challenges you'll get soft and lazy and the surrounding neighbors will just come back in at some point and conquer you and take over. That's why, right, Christ doesn't just deliver 100% of the struggle away from us. We pray for that sometimes, Lord. <laughs> Make it all go away. Just wave the magic wand. I'll wake up tomorrow and not have any of this. That'd be a beautiful thing. Except it would make us lazy. And our enemy's not going to rest. And he's going to come back around. And if you aren't used to falling on your knees and falling on your face and fighting your way through the temptation and the struggle and the battle, then the defeat would be complete. When the temptation came, you'd have no ability to resist. Jesus Christ said, you want to follow me? You're going to have to take up your cross daily. And die to yourself.
Die to your own desires daily. They say, I've been doing it for years. Well, I'm weary. I'm tired. I've just sort of given up. Pick the cross back up and start the fight again. Because it's going to go on. There is a day of rest coming, right? There's a day of rest coming. And he's talking about it right here. That's in the presence of the Lord. As long as we're here, the battle is going to continue. If we give in, then we have given up. The long-suffering, the patient endurance, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has delivered us, and he has qualified us. You see, the fact that you are going to have struggles and failures and work your way along through this could lead you to the place where you think, like, I'm not qualified. I am defeated. I cannot do this. The qualification comes through Jesus Christ, not you. That's, that's how that works. He's already won the race. He's always, you know, already finished the fight, already conquered the enemy. He's already accomplished the work. He's given us the reward. He's qualified us as his children, as saints. But we must endure in the process to see that his work of deliverance is occurring in our lives. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The qualification comes through Jesus Christ's work at the cross. There's so many people that teach contrary to that, and in particular, they do from these passages. We'll talk about that uh, when we get a little further along in this. In verse 15, he says, he, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now listen, the firstborn isn't in numeric order. It's the idea of being the most important one. And he says that if you look at the bottom or the end of verse 18, it says uh, that in all things he may have the preeminence. It means he's the most significant, the most important. We have that occasion as we look at the fathers of the Jewish nation where you have Ephraim and Manasseh and Manasseh being born after Ephraim their grandfather blessed the one who was born later Ephraim and said he is the firstborn and then later the Lord actually recorded it saying of Ephraim my firstborn because the inheritance went to him. The preeminence went to him. The importance went to him. It's, it's significant because the Jehovah's Witnesses and many of the other cults try to take this and say that somehow Jesus was created. That he was made. He is the firstborn of creation. The first thing born of creation was Jesus. God made Jesus first. And that's false. That's not what's being said. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn with me to Proverbs 
chapter 8. If you run into Jehovah's Witnesses, the best thing I can tell you to do is exactly what John told us to do, which is shut the door in their face. Okay? Do not invite them into your home, is what he told us to do. But if you're ministering to them and sharing the love of Christ with them, I've, over the years, had one occasion to lead a Jehovah's Witness to the Lord. That was a, a pretty cool event that happened many years ago now. But most of the time, they're, they're going to just shut you off and not listen to anything you have to say. The Jehovah's Witnesses take this verse where it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and they say Jesus was created. And then they'll, sh they'll say, I'll show you where. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8 with me. And they'll take you to verse 23. And they'll say, this is Jesus speaking, where it says, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. It continues on. And if, if you take their line of thinking, you can be left thinking yourself like, oh my goodness, Jesus was created. I had no idea. If you've studied the word of God with, Christian, with Christians, you, you would have thought Jesus is God all along. They take this verse out of context from Colossians chapter 1, add it to that verse section in Proverbs chapter 8, and then string a few more on after that, and taking everything out of context cause you to think that Jesus was created. Look at Proverbs chapter 8, where I just had you. Go to verse 1, where it says, Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes a stand on the top of the hill, or the high hill, beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entrance of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call. My voice is to the sons of men. Now, wisdom speaking continues to speak, and you drop down to verse 23, and wisdom is still speaking, and she says, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before uh, there was ever an earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. This is a female personification of wisdom. This is not Jesus Christ. It has certain applications to Jesus Christ, and okay, fine, but this is not a description of Jesus Christ being created, okay? Now, go to John chapter 1 with me. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, Keep that train of thought and drop right down to verse 14. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus Christ being described here quite clearly. Now that I've established that we're talking about Jesus Christ, go back up to verse 3. Right? We read 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, now before we move on, nothing was made that was made other than what Jesus made. Do you follow that? Jesus made everything. If Jesus was created then those verses are false. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses say, God the Father created Jesus. Having created Jesus, then Jesus created everything else. This would be wrong if Jesus had been created by the Father. Because it says all things were made by Jesus. If Jesus was created by the Father, it would have to say everything except for Jesus was created. By Jesus. Jesus is not created. He is God, is the point. Come back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Supportive passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says in the English Standard Version, He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the express image of God. Maybe I've done more to confuse you than to clarify but the simplicity of it is, all things were made by Jesus Christ. Back in Colossians chapter 1, looking at verse 16. i got to hurry up. I've only got like three hours left. So those of you that were in a hurry to get home. Verse 16. I'm kidding. For by him all things were created, again, that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. That means all the angels, all the demons, all things were created through him and for him. So they were all created for him. That's what you were created for. That's why anything we pursue for ourselves is in fact idolatry. Right? Because you were created for Jesus Christ, not yourself. You were created to worship God. That's where you're going to find your greatest fulfillment. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. That term consist is are held together. Okay. They're literally held together by Jesus Christ. How? Like charged particles fly apart. You take the magnets, you put the north end to the north end, try to push them together, and they get all slippery, and you can't stick them together. Flip them around, 
North and South stick together real nice, right? Like charged particles repel one another. The atom itself is constructed of particles that have like charged energy. And science cannot explain why they stay together. And when we bombard the center of that with particles and we break the bond that holds those like charged particles together, when they do fly apart, that atomic explosion mushroom cloud you see, that's what happens when the energy contained inside the atoms that's holding them together is broken. That's, that's just them flying apart as they naturally should. Peter recorded that all of creation will at some point disappear with a mighty roar. Literally, the, the whole of creation, all of the universe, will disintegrate into its atomic structure, apparently, the way it's described. The very elements themselves. You guys heard the term fallout, right? The, the greatest portion of fallout, all of that ash, that the radioactive ash that falls out of the sky and you know makes people sick and harms and kills, now, most of that's burnt atmosphere. The energy that passes up through the atmosphere, destroying the atomic structure of the atmosphere, and then it falls down as radioactive ash. The elements themselves are currently being held together by Jesus Christ, according to this passage right here. The Lord himself. God isn't going to have to get really angry and hurl down massive, thunderous destruction upon creation in order to weigh out his wrath and his vengeance. He's just going to have to let go. Right, right now, people say, oh, if there's a loving God, how can all these terrible things happen all around us? You know what's most remarkable? Is the fact that there aren't a whole lot more terrible things going on all around us. God is keeping order. As spun out of control as things are right now, God is keeping a great deal of things in order. You want to see what it's like when he lifts his hand off in it just a little bit, not entirely, just lifts his hand off in it a little bit. Go home and read the book of Revelation in one sitting. It won't take you a half hour to read from Revelation chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book. Look at the terror that comes upon this earth. Look at the horror. When the whole world has said, we want nothing to do with God, and God finally says, okay, go ahead, do it your way. Right now, he's keeping things in order. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And again, right, there were people that were resurrected from the dead before Jesus Christ. There were people that were resurrected from the dead in the Old Testament, every one of them was resurrected back to life to proceed along the timeline to die somewhere. Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the most important, the most significant, because he was resurrected and never died again. He is the one who is the source of all resurrection. He said it himself, I am the resurrection of life. 
He is the most significant of all those who have been resurrected. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, the most important position. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, all the fullness of the Godhead. Everything about God is in Jesus Christ. There's many, many arguments and many discussions about Jesus being God. Uh, I went a few days ago and did a search through the scripture and came up with more than 120 verses that refer to Jesus as being God, Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus is God. It's not something that the scripture uh, has any problem with. It's only those who don't like the scripture who try to make it say something other than that. By him to reconcile us so, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Listen, there's a false teaching in Christianity that particularly Rob Bell uh, has promoted in the emergent church movement. It's completely false. The idea that God is going to save everyone. That, that even Lucifer himself will someday be in heaven with us. And totally false teaching. Totally unbiblical. This statement here about reconciling all things to him, it's the things that will submit to his sacrifice and to his blood. His lordship, his headship, his being God, all of those things will be reconciled to him. Through his grace, if we'll just accept his sacrifice at the cross, then we can experience salvation. Verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Through his blood, through his sacrifice, we will be presented holy and blameless. That'll be a wonderful day where Jesus Christ presents us to the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'd like to introduce Will the Perfect, you know. That's, I, that's awesome. There's a coming day that by simply accepting the sacrifice he's made, all things will be erased. Any negativity, any sin, anything that would have kept me from him will be removed, will be removed from you. Blameless and above reproach in his sight. Wow. That's, that's got to be God's grace that accomplishes that. Then he makes this qualifying statement. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you abide, if you remain, if you depart from it, then you don't have any hope. Your hope is lost. Whatever you might have clung to in Jesus Christ. That's a really unfortunate thing that a lot of, of Christianity teaches a false sense of eternal security. 
There is eternal security. That, that is without question a, a, a foundational Christian doctrine. If you abide in Christ, if you remain, then you can have eternal security. You, you depart from it, then you're on your own. You, you have rejected the only source of salvation. Now this statement, which was preached to every creature under heaven, that shows you the effectiveness of Christianity at this time. Uh, by this point, Christianity is spread through the whole known world at that time. There's a statement that I've used even recently that if you removed the Holy Spirit from the early church that we read about here in the book of Acts, 90% of what you see going on would not have been occurring at all. Today, if you remove the Holy Spirit from the church, 90% of what's going on would continue to go on. Because it's all man-made programs. We, we, we churn along on systems. We, we you know, are motivated and working through all of the different methods that have ever been in place. It's, it's really remarkable, uh, you know, to, you know, see people who finally get exposed and you're thinking, wait a minute, they've got like a massive worldwide ministry and that's how they're living? Yeah, exactly. They, they, they were able to create that whole thing uh, simply through marketing. Now, uh, Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, uh, listening to his sermon on Colossians chapter 1, is making remarks about how amazed he was at that point that Calvary Chapel had spread around the world the way that it had. And this is many years before he passed away. His brother, Paul, uh, wrote a book called The New Evangelicalism. And a whole bunch of people were really angry at Paul, inside Calvary Chapel and outside Calvary Chapel, because Paul had written that book. Because Paul documents how the church, not Calvary Chapel, but the church throughout history has gone through these cycles where the Holy Spirit works in a particular individual and that raises up a large group of people around them who study how that person did it, and they methodize everything they did, imitate that, and create a giant movement that's based in the work that was being done by that person rather than the effect of the Holy Spirit on their heart. Paul specifically goes through and talks about each one of the names of the people that have done that through Christian history. And Calvary Chapel and, like I said, other churches were really angry with him about that. Because he's saying, you know, here is a work of the Holy Spirit, and then that's all the junk that followed. And here's a work of the Holy Spirit, and that's all the junk that followed. In particular, he talks very specifically about the church growth movement and those who founded it and those who are getting rich by it. It needs to be that we each are impacted by the work of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 24, I now rejoice in my suffering for you, 
and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, like the Seventh-day Adventists and Ellen G. White have taken this and turned this into Jesus Christ began the work at the cross, and now we have to finish the work in order to obtain salvation. That's completely false. That's false doctrine. It's false teaching. It doesn't fit into the scripture anywhere. You say, well, then what is Paul saying right here? Well, a careful study of the original language tells us that this does not refer to Jesus suffering at the cross for our salvation. It's speaking of those that persecuted Jesus during his earthly ministry and continue to even to this day. Uh, let me read it again. I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Proof text. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 4, Jesus Christ confronts Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus as he's going to kill Christians. And it says, Then he, meaning Paul, fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who was Paul persecuting? The church. He was torturing them and putting them in jail and having them put to death. He was a Afflicting the church. The affliction of Jesus Christ continues in Paul's body, in his frame at this very moment that he's writing this verse. And it should be continuing in our frame. Should be continuing in our frame. The world's going to hate you. If you're doing everything you can to avoid that, you're doing it wrong. If you're a child of God, they're going to hate you. People are not going to like you. And that's good. That's right. That's appropriate. It tells you that you're on the right team. If the whole world loves you, you're on the wrong team. You're posing as a Christian. Nobody wants to be a poser. We need to be real Christians. Look at verse 24. I now rejoice, as I said, in my suffering for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. Now, just pause Hold your thought for a second. The mystery is not some ancient secret that we can all know. I was just having a conversation today about conspiracy theories. And there's a whole bunch of Christians right now that are getting caught up in different conspiracy theories about the government and, you know, right wing and left wing and this organization and that, you know, person and this newsletter. And you got to get these informational things sent to you and all this nonsense. Jesus Christ has always been right out in the open. There's no hidden secret knowledge. Okay? 
Any of you that have studied the scripture for any amount of time should, when I say that, think of one group of people that the apostles all had to oppose and write very specific things against. They were known as the Gnostics. Right? The Gnostics were trying to say this very thing. Oh, we got special secrets. We got special knowledge. We know who were you know, involved in the conspiracy theories. We know all about the Rothschild Foundation. You got to get this newsletter, that newsletter. You go come study with us. You'll know the real inside story. Jesus Christ said, none of it's hidden. It's plain. The mystery he's talking about is the fact that the Gentiles were going to be part of salvation. The Jews had the mindset like, we're it. We're the only ones. The rest of you are all just fuel for hell. That's literally what they said. You guys are like big bundles of wood. <laughs> just to be burned in the fire. That's all you're, that's all you're good for. You've got to be Jewish. And then Peter goes to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and the Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles, and they are all flabbergasted. With the fact that, wait, 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 wait a second. Gentiles get saved? How in the world can that be? This is the mystery Paul's talking about. It was hidden, and now it's been revealed. And Paul's part of that revealing. He's a minister to the Gentiles. So the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed, to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Think of it like the Trojan horse, right? You want to get the whole army inside the city? Hide them in the horse. Wheel the wooden horse into the city, right? You want to get all you sorry loser sinners into the presence of God? Hide them in Jesus Christ. Bring Jesus Christ into the presence of the Father, and all that the Lord sees is Jesus. You, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, when the Lord looks upon you, what he sees is his Son. It's a beautiful camouflage. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord has done. Presenting us perfect, that is never going to happen by your works, it's going to happen when you accept the singular work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Does that make sense for you? Praise God. Well, we'll pick up at chapter 2 next week. You want to stand with me and we'll pray? Father, we thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. We thank you for the book of Colossians and what Paul has recorded for us here. Help us, Lord, to trust your work and to embrace the work you've given us. 
the suffering, the endurance, the long-suffering. Lord, help us to see in the world around us that the hour is short, that your coming is close at hand, that we wouldn't be disheartened with all of the difficulty we face personally and that the world faces collectively, that we would be able to focus on you and wait upon you and your work in our lives. Bless us. Keep us. Watch over us until we're together again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.